everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, today we're having a special episode, a break from our normal issue reviews. And we have gathered an all-star cast of uh, female presenting uh, guest stars today who are going to talk all about women in comics is kind of the loose theme. We're going to have a very special conversation uh, going in a lot of different directions. And I'm so honored to have each of our guests here. Uh, we have a new guest here that I'll introduce very first. Uh, we have uh, Jessica Baldanzi, who I actually, Jessica, let me have you introduce yourself. Tell us uh, who you are and how we found each other, if you will. I am a professor of English and a whole bunch of other things because I work at a small liberal arts college, small but mighty, I like to say, in Goshen, Indiana, Goshen College. Um, and I teach comics. I've been teaching comics I've been here for 15 years. I started teaching comics here a couple of years after that. So I've been teaching comics for a long time. And that led to blogging about comics, which I do on my blog called Commons Comics, which is a comics review blog. And now I've published a couple a couple articles um, and co-edited a book about the new Miss Marvel, about Kamala Khan, the new Miss Marvel. And I've also published an article about teaching comics. Um, yeah. I think that's enough for now. I have a new book coming out too. But What's your new book? My new book uh, is hopefully coming out this year, but maybe next year. And it's called Bodies and Boundaries and Graphic Fiction. Notice I don't even like know my own title. I have to like look to the side to read it. <laughs> you just read it, the title. Bodies and Boundaries and Graphic Fiction, Reading Female and Non-Binary Characters. That's amazing. I'm so looking forward to reading it. Having read a lot of your blog and uh, and your Ms. Marvel book, I'm so impressed uh, with the work that you're doing. Uh, let's have a, a, our returning guest, uh, Carrie Harris, uh, introduce herself. Uh, I'm Carrie. My pronouns are she, her. And um, I am an author of novels for Marvel, so no pictures, um, just a lot of words. Um, so I've done uh, X-Men, Ghost Rider, and then I have Avengers coming out in the spring. And um, I've also done some original graphic novels. So. And then we have two of my favorite returning guests uh, here with us today who have both become good friends of mine over the last several months. Uh, let's have Alicia and then Noel introduce themselves. Awesome. Hi, I'm Alicia. I use she, her pronouns. I am co-host of the Ex-Wife podcast. Um, I am also a cosplayer and a dancer choreographer in my quote unquote free time. <laughs> Whatever free time is. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> and then Noelle. Yeah, I'm Noelle Reed. She, her. I host a podcast called X-Men Unraveled where I follow the stories of the X-Men in chronological order. Um. So for the context of today's discussion, I've been focusing a lot on the issues of portrayal of women in the X-Men comics in the 1960s. We've had a lot of conversations in the podcast uh, week to week about the portrayal of Jean Grey in particular, a lot of conversations about the portrayal of the Scarlet Witch. And then in the early X-Men books, the only other female characters we get regularly, unless it's one of the moms of the X-Men or something like that, uh, are the girlfriends of the characters, Candy Southern and Zelda Kurtzberg and Vera Cantor. Uh, we, we get to see these characters treated often kind of jokingly. They're often in very support roles. 
so one of the conversations I wanted to have today as we as we talk about the portrayal of women in comics is how it has changed over time, not only for the portrayal of characters, but for comic book readers and frankly, even comic book professionals. When we look back to the early books, we can see almost no female representation from editors to writers to artists. And nowadays the landscape is very different. So first question I have for our panel today is just what is the current landscape for female fans in the Marvel universe or in an, in the comic book world itself? Uh, Jessica, do you wanna start us off? I can, um, and I apologize. I forgot to introduce my pronouns. I use she, her pronouns. Oh, um, sorry, apologize. Um, yeah, it sounds like hearing what all of your expertise is, you'll have a lot more to say about this than I do. I actually came to comics um, in, from the scholarly angle, uh, not initially through superheroes, and then uh, did this Ms. Marvel book, which I co-edited with Hussein Rashid, who I took on partly because he's a religious studies scholar, so I knew he would have a lot to say about um, Ms. Marvel and uh, her religion, um, but also he's... Um, He's an old school comic book expert. Um, so I learned a lot from doing that book and from him. Um, I can say though, um, I'm looking forward to hearing what you all have to say specifically about um, comic book universe, superhero universe. Um, but definitely I started teaching, I taught my first comics class in 2008 and there were not a lot of books to assign um, that were by women already. I had to struggle for that. And I also definitely had to struggle, struggle for all sorts of diverse representation, um, trying to find good books to assign in my classes on those reading lists. And just, you know, it's so fast, it got better and better and better. And now it just seems like there's so, so many more voices out there. It's such a, so much more healthy um, in terms of both audience and the people who are making comic books um, and drawing comic books as well. Um, so yeah, it's exploded in, in a really good way. Um, but I, I just, every time I write about this and talk about this, I'm struck that it really wasn't that long ago that it was hard to, to find um, a lot of different voices. Uh, Alicia, I know you're relatively new to the comic book world. What has it been like for you as a reader and a podcaster coming in as a female comic book fan? It's kind of amazing because of being diving specifically into X-Men comics. And there are a lot of really powerful women in the X-Men comics. And I think where things are going right now, we're seeing a lot of those female characters sort of um, take charge of their own lives and, and make choices for themselves that are good for the community that are being recognized by their community. Um, I feel as a fan, my favorite characters change weekly. Um, and I just, I haven't found something that I've felt so connected to in a fiction world with so many female characters before being in comics. Um, you know, there's, there's novels that I love, but there's usually like one strong female character and then a bunch of other characters in there. Um, so that the fact that there's a community of female characters that are really pushing stories forward and that, a lot of their motivation is not just driven by getting a guy or a relationship in any form. Um, it's actually about, you know, their own progression in the worlds that they're creating. And it's outside of relationships or romantic relationships. I find really wonderful. Um, 
I would also say just as a fan in general with the community, I felt very welcomed and accepted. And, you know, growing up, I was the only girl with all boy cousins. And I always felt like no matter what I wanted to be interested in, there was always this sort of wall of, ew, but you're a girl. Like you can't, you, oh, you want to like play sports with us, but you can't really because you're a girl or, oh, you want to be into this cool thing that we're into, but you're a girl. And I never felt that way coming into um, the comic fandom. I've always been welcomed. My thoughts and opinions have always been something that people want to talk with me about. And it's a new experience coming into something that a lot of times when I was younger, I thought that I just wasn't allowed to do because I was a girl. So everyone is always really welcoming. And the stories I find a lot of connection to, and I get really excited about the characters. And I also feel really happy about how most of the time um, looking at the female characters, how they're depicted and that they're not always drawn as like sex symbols where I feel they used to be. So I think that progression, you know, when a character wants to be sexy, they're sexy, but when they want to be strong in another way, they want to have their power showcased in another way. That's something that the artists are really doing a wonderful job of too. So I think the writing and the storytelling is something that I'm always finding connections in and always finding hope for the future of female characters in. And Carrie, I know you've been a much longer term fan of Marvel, of X-Men. How have you seen that landscape change during your time reading over the years? And now, I, I mean, feel free to answer as a novelist as well, working in the industry as a, as a female writer. As a yeah. writer, I shouldn't say female writer, just as a writer. Well, I'm both. It's, it's okay. I think um, for me, I feel like there is a shift and I think it's still ongoing but a shift from showing female characters as something you'd like to have and, and shifting into female characters as something you'd like to be. Um, so that the characters are not something to be possessed, something that is passive. Um, you know, we have Jean Grey fainting all the time because she's, she's strong, but not so strong that she's threatening. Um, you know, and, and you've got characters now that are able to be complex beyond their romantic entanglements and on into their, their personal lives and their emotions and whatnot. And um, so as a reader, it's really exciting. As a writer, um, one of the things that I've seen lately is uh, kind of a shift in, in reframing how we see certain characters like the Scarlet Witch um, with uh, Leah Williams' new run, um, she's looking at the things that the Scarlet Witch has done, which are, she's had, she's had some history. Um, and you can argue whether or not it's successful, but putting that history into perspective as a, a flawed person who makes mistakes sometimes rather than uh, a demonized figure who's, who's one-dimensional. Um, so it's exciting both as a writer and as a reader. You mentioned Jean Grey fainting. I'm just thinking as you say that, I can't think of a single time when one of the male characters faints. They get knocked unconscious, uh, but Jean oh, yes. faints. <laughs> At the drop of a hat. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Noel, kind of the same question. I know you've been reading X-Men a lot. How have you seen the landscape change? And what's it been like for you doing uh, podcasting as both a fan in this current landscape and as a reader? Yeah, so um, I kind of jump around in the comics on my podcast so I can be reading something newer and or one of the issues a lot closer to the 60s. And it just always feels like a big difference. You know, when I get past that, intro page and see the list of names of who is writing, who's uh, illustrating. And when I see a list of men's names, I'm like, okay, keep that in mind. Anytime a female character comes up, how she's treated, um, things that happen to her, um, kind of mentally prepare myself that, okay, this could be worst case scenario when I go through this issue. Um, and then I'm reading a lot of the newer stuff now, and it's so nice to see a balance, more of a balance between male and female writers and seeing how that dynamic plays out with the characters. Um, because for me, my real introduction to the X-Men, and they're my primary focus, obviously, was the animated series. And so I just remember being a kid and always, I, I grew up in a house where comics and superheroes were really common and I was always looking for my characters to kind of latch onto or look up to. And so I was really lucky in that the series existed and there was Rogue and there was Storm and I could see these powerful women who are their own individuals. And I feel like I'm seeing that a lot more as the comics progress um, in that these more female characters are full beings and they're not a side character. They're not as derivative of a male character or something like that. And the podcasting world has actually been a surprisingly positive space. I was very worried when I started because I was coming in like my journey through the X-Men is through the podcast because um, I wasn't a major comic reader before then. And I was really worried about not being an expert and being a female coming into that space of how I would be received and it's been amazingly positive. I I was kind of expecting, you know, negative messages or emails, anything like that, reviews. And um, it's been very positive, which is hopeful for me, especially compared to a lot of other fandoms where you just see a cascade of vitriol about women's issues. Um, so in the podcast space, it's been really awesome. The uh, the idea of the modern generation of readers, I think a lot of people got their start with the cartoon uh, or later with the movies. And the cartoon itself, I think the best characters are Rogue and Storm. And I think a lot of people agree. I mean, Cyclops and Wolverine and Gambit are all great, but Rogue and Storm are the big powerhouses, uh, even though they both faint a lot. <laughs> but, uh, but Heather, I know you got your start uh, with X-Men fandom primarily in the movies. Uh, what was it like for you as a viewer? And then let me have you kind of add on to that. You've been reading the 60s comics with me uh, on the podcast live for a while now. Uh, what's it like to compare and contrast the two? Uh, so when you guys consider the changing landscape over time, uh, we're seeing powerful female characters written by powerful female writers. But now Marvel got its start back in the 1940s, and we could we could examine the entire comic book industry. But Marvel in particular was Atlas Comics back in the 40s, kind of post-World War II stories. 
lots of romance comics and monster comics and Western comics. But the Fantastic Four is what kind of changed the landscape when you see these, this new series coming out. And the trope for a long time was to have mostly male characters for a mostly male audience. And there's usually one or two superpowered females in each book and then lots of supporting cast members. Lots of gender tropes, lots of uh, lots of things going on. And we're going to talk more about the 60s in particular. I think in the 70s, when you see the women's lib movement uh, joining in, we see a lot of the older characters from the 60s start to change, start to morph into something new, adopting new storylines. And then in the 80s, it gets even stronger. The 90s, it gets very hypersexualized, as we referenced just a little while ago. And then in the 2000s, is when we see these same characters that we've loved for decades really start to take off on their own and start to have their own storylines, their own voices, their own series. Uh, the character Captain Marvel is a really amazing example of this. Carol Danvers launched in the 60s as a supporting character in the Captain Marvel series. In the 70s, she became Ms. Marvel and was a very, very, like wearing, wearing a bathing suit in combat. <laughs> but it's not until just frankly a few years back where she adopted the title Captain Marvel that we really see her taking off into the very strong powerhouse character that she is. Let me just ask for some of your thoughts on the changing portrayal of women in comics over the years. Who has inspired you? What's been a problem for you? Whatever comes up during this discussion is completely fine. And we'll just keep it open-ended. Whoever would like to share, please. All right. Um, it's such a complicated question, really. Um, I think the things that the thing that bothers me the most is the practicality of what the women are dressed in and what they're asking them to do. You know, a lot of my issues come from you. You're generally not putting a male character in an outfit that they wouldn't realistically be able to function in just for the gaze of the people who are watching or are consuming the media. Right. But the women are often asked to do these superhero things in tiny skirts or tops that would in no way stay on their boobs if they lift their arms in the air um, or high heel shoes or you know, something like that. And I think there are moments when the characters can be fashionable, but as a person who does a lot of physical things in my everyday life, I look a lot at the outfits that they're wearing and I just think that's not going to be functional at all. That's purely there for the people who are reading this as another way to pull them in or the I guess the target audience, right? Because a lot of it was targeted towards male readers and not towards female readers. Um, I also think that they, they, without intentionally, or maybe it was intentional, were contributing to the societal norms of what they wanted women to look like. So you're giving, you know, these young boys, these images of women whose bodies are so disproportionate to how a real body should look. And then they're getting connected to that. And then you see, you know, women in your life and you want all the women in your life to look like these fabulously sexy superheroes. Um, and I think it just is adding to this, idea that is already something that women and girls experience in media in all forms of like, you know, you always have to have your fresh face of makeup and your hair has to look good and your outfit has to be pleasing to other people, not to you, to yourself. So that for me has always been a struggle. Um, 
of something that, you know, when I go back and look at books and even now in the current comics, when they put Jean back in her Marvel girl outfit and started calling her Marvel girl again, I had problems with that because I felt like though I don't know all of the trajectory of that character because I haven't read all of the comics over time, she really has done a lot to make a stronger name for herself and a stronger presence and build more confidence in who she is. And I felt like that taking her back to that name and taking her back to putting her in that skirt was frustrating to me. Um, and, you know, I've mentioned it on on your podcast before that Jean particularly in the older issues that I read, you know, I always want her to be able to stand up for herself more. And a lot of the older comics, I feel the female characters, they they are always in a situation where they can't be as strong as they can be because they need the support of the male characters in order to do that. And they're questioned a lot, you know, they're asked, well, could you really do this? Should you really do this? Should you just hang back and let the boys do this? And as a girl growing up with mostly boys, I always wanted to be able to see a character who could tell the boys like, calm down, I've got this, you know, and I, that feels like it took a while to get to that point. Um, But like I said, I haven't read as much of the old continuities to be able to talk about the storylines of the characters, but visually looking back at them, I think it adds a lot to, you know, what people are perceiving a female you know, a successful, powerful female should look like. So jump off that a little bit, Alicia. That's, I think that's really, really well said. Um, and I, I love the way um, Kamala Khan, G. Willow Wilson's Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, she goes through this all herself, right? It wasn't these bodies um, were, yes, probably made for male comic book readerships largely. And then on top of it, she has trouble deciding what she wants her superhero identity to look like too, right? When she first transforms with her superpowers, um, she looks like uh, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel in one of her older costumes with the high boots. And she even says that's what she wants. Right. Um, and then she actually runs into all those problems that are like kind of a stereotype, right? Like her boots are too high and she can't move properly. Right. And she's just kind of like, what am I doing? And, and that's when her friend has to come help her because she's not working properly in this ridiculous outfit. Right. Um, and it's not until she kind of transforms as herself, she finds a superhero identity as herself. And as somebody who's, um, older, I grew up reading all of my, um, my big brother's comic books, like Spider-Man and stuff like that. Also his mad magazine. Um, so some pretty old school stuff. And just as a, as a woman, I wasn't even as aware as you, Alicia, like saying, Hey, I don't like these storylines. I just kind of, especially when I was younger, I just absorbed all of it. And I was like, Oh no, my body doesn't look like that. I am inadequate. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I think, the atmosphere is much, much better today for sure. Um, I think it affected not just men and affected women for a long time as well. So it's great that some of those stereotypes are just being busted. And not only are there a lot of really positive uh, characters for girls to read, um, I have two sons. Um, my youngest is a fan of Squirrel Girl and Shuri, and just he loves a lot of those characters uh, so much. And my older son likes a lot of stuff too, but specifically my younger, he's he's really into Shuri. It's awesome. Uh, I'm a big fan of his fandom of Shuri. Um, so yeah, I think there's just so many more possibilities, and I think that's healthy. I think 
it's also when you're in it, you can't, it's really hard to see what stereotypes are, are going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially for kids, they just absorb, absorb, absorb. So I'm really glad it's healthier now. I do wonder if there's some things I'm not seeing now, right? Um, that people will look back on and be like, oh my gosh, but yeah. You know, I've run into the same thing with my kids that their experience of these characters is very different from mine. Um, because I remember back in the day, um, you know, the the way that a lot of female characters were the, um, you know, they were they were smart, they were powerful until something went wrong and the hero was there and then they turned into, oh no, what do we do now, ladies? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, their, their contribution was to stand there and panic, which is not at all in line with the character you've set up that, that she's smart, that she's powerful, that she's capable. Um, but when the chips are down, she's there to highlight the power of the, the male hero and the capability of the male hero. And so um, having characters that are, that have that power and are able to put it to use um, is I, I think really important that, you know, X-Men in particular and Marvel in general deserves a lot of credit for having so many female characters, even when that wasn't the thing to do, um, you know? And so even with all of these criticisms, I think we've got to give them props for the fact that they were on the page in the first place, um, but giving them the space to, um, you know, to be the agent of their own success, to to take control of their own um, future is is something that's more recent. And I think, um, y- you know, we've still got some work to do, but I'm here for it. <laughs> I'll talk more about this in a minute, but I feel like the women characters in the 60s were often not there to appeal to female readers at all. But instead, mm-hmm. they were someone for the men to flirt with or objectify or save uh, or someone almost for the writers to make fun of a lot of the time. And it's very uncomfortable when you watch a lot of the portrayal in the X-Men, particularly with Jean Grey. Uh, but I, I mean, I could do a four hour discussion on Susan Storm in uh, in the Fantastic Four, who's probably the best example of this over time. Um, there's so there's so many uh, uncomfortable portrayals. I, they weren't trying to appeal to female readers is is my opinion at all. And we're gonna we're gonna introduce uh, 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 some commentary on that in a few minutes. Uh, but it's it's an interesting thing. I worked in a comic book shop in the late 90s, uh, and I became a Marvel fan in the early 90s. but as a as a closeted gay teen in the late 90s selling books, there was this swath of books like Witchblade and Vampirella and she and Fathom and Gen 13. And the women's breasts were often larger than their heads, or at the very least, larger than their waistlines. Yeah. And I remember having this insane, like, what in the hell? Like, I don't know any women who look like this. Uh, and this can't be healthy. Uh, and it wasn't later until I got more into studies about feminism, but the the portrayal of characters was not for women then either. My goodness. Well, even now, there are some... Um some things that, you know, where the women on the covers are in completely um, uh, impossible, um, like they're they're contorted into, into positions that you cannot possibly be in. Mm -hmm. And there is, um, there's a, there's a thing that I, 
it's it's no longer really active, but I still love it so much. It's called the the Hawkeye Initiative, I think it's called, and it's uh, drawings of Hawkeye, fan art of Hawkeye in positions that the ladies are in. That's amazing, and it's one of the best things I've seen in my life. Um, <laughs> and it kind of turns that trope around. And when you see Hawkeye in those ridiculous outfits, you know, um, posing with his with his lips puckered, you think that's that's really awful. It, it makes you see it in a different light. So um, I highly recommend. There's, I had there's, forgotten about that. Yeah. Until I was doing some research for this week. I was like, oh my gosh, that was so great. I wish it was still active because I love to look at them. There's one other thing I, I want to bring up in the idea of the progression, um, because I think it's important to think about how the other characters have progressed in relation to the female characters and not just how the female characters have pr- progressed. So I think it's really wonderful the way that they're showing other characters having more dimension in their emotional states of things, you know, them having more feelings and and crying or breaking down or longing to be in love with someone who is not the person that they would be in love with, or just going through things that were so often used to be a weakness for female characters and showing them no longer as a weakness and that all the characters experience them is something that I think also makes a female reader feel they can actually connect to more characters and that gives a feeling of equality between all of the characters. They're all people and they all have emotions and really diving into that lens um, for all characters and not just the female characters helps progress the female characters because they're not, then they're not put in these stereotypes. There are things that everybody is experiencing in the world and not just the females. Yeah, it's not just women being hurt by the portrayal of women in comics. It's men and their understandings of women who are also being hurt. Absolutely. Um, Let's break here because it's a natural pause. I want to introduce an essay that I found that stuck with me over the years. Now, Mark Grunwald is a beloved Marvel writer who's been gone a long time. So a lot of modern people haven't heard of him, but he's the writer of the initial Marvel handbooks. He wrote Captain America for years and years. He wrote Quasar. Uh, He died tragically in the 90s. Uh, But he used to have a column that ran in the Marvel bullpen called uh, Mark's Remarks, and he would just kind of write on different topics. Now, the essay we're going to read here is from three different columns of Mark's Remarks that ran back to back. And it's based in the late 1980s, and there's still some problems even in the way that this is written. But it's really interesting because it talks about some of what we're bringing up in the podcast today. Now, for all of you, if you'll pull up the essay, are you all comfortable reading out loud if we take turns with paragraphs? If there's anyone who's not, just give me a thumbs down. So let's go in order of paragraph. We'll do Chad, Alicia, Carrie, Jessica, Noel. So uh, just one, two, three, four, five. Uh, So let me start at the top of the essay. And we're just going to read these three columns out loud and then talk about this uh, a little bit. Mark says, don't know if you've ever noticed it, but it seems to me that more men and boys read comic books than women and girls. The comics medium doesn't have the variety of genres that it once had. Western war books, romances, mysteries, and crime stories are pretty scarce, leaving the medium largely to its unique creation, the superhero. That being so, is there something about heroic fiction of this sort that predominantly appeals to males and leaves females cold? Or is it that there just aren't the right heroes being published to appeal to women? 
Or maybe there just aren't enough female writers, artists, and editors to give a more feminine slant to superheroic fiction. This may be a closed logic loop because these comics don't appeal to them. More women don't aspire to get into the business. Because more women don't get into the business, they never produce comics that would appeal to more women. Uh, Okay. One theory proposed to me why women don't read comics proposed by a woman who reads comics is that the sort of power fantasies engendered, no pun intended, in the superhero genre are male fantasies, not female ones. I think we can all agree that a large part of the appeal of superhero is the power aspect. Here are a bunch of people who can do neat things we wish we could do. Are there masculine superpowers and feminine superpowers then? I think we can also agree that there are differences between males and females, both biological and cultural. There are traditional cultural virtues and traits ascribed more to one sex than the other. Statistically, men do better than women at mathematics. Women do better than men at verbal skills in scholastic aptitude tests for whatever reason. Women are considered to be more intuitive than men. Certain men are considered macho, while there isn't a roughly equivalent word for women. So what about these superhero power trips? Are they strictly masculine in appeal? I know men and boys who identify with the Hulk and would love to be the strongest guy around with the license to venture anger through violence. Do women and girls identify with the Hulk? The She-Hulk may be a knockoff of the Hulk, but she does not represent the uninhibited brute inside some, if not most of us, the way he does, since she keeps her smarts when she flexes her muscles. Is it that most women don't have the urge to smash things that keep them from identifying with the Hulk the way men might? Or is it simply that women don't identify with male characters? Marvel's male heroes easily outnumber its female heroes five to one, Is it simply that we don't have enough female heroes that women can identify with, that we don't have more female readers? Again, we have a closed logical loop. Since more women don't read comics, we don't create or publish more female heroes for them. Because we don't create or publish more heroes for them, more women don't read comics. There are a lot of questions I've left unanswered here and plenty more to be said about this topic than I can cover this time around. So I'll probably pick up on it next month. In the meantime, I'd like to hear from you readers, particularly, but not exclusively you female readers, on why you think more women don't read superhero comics. Continued in the second essay. Go ahead, Noel. Last month, I posed the question, why don't more women and girls read superhero comics? I mentioned the theory that perhaps the power fantasies that most, if not all, superheroes embody don't appeal as much to women for some reason, maybe because of women's biological differences, cultural upbringing, or maybe because the female superheroes we have just just don't do justice to women's specific power fantasies. I want to proceed with the last premise and do some quick analyses on Marvel's original female superheroes. I find heroine a sexist word if anyone wonders why I avoid it. Marvel's premier female superhero is Sue Storm Richards, the invisible woman, formerly girl. Her power originally was simply becoming invisible, a neat enough power. I can think of plenty of times it would have come in handy, but you must admit a very passive defensive one compared to her teammates' powers in the Fantastic Four. In FF number 22, she developed her invisible force field projecting abilities, a real nifty offensive 
power equal to the other guys, though she never used it aggressively until recent times. Sue was the archetypal sister, girlfriend, and by number 44 of the Fantastic Four, wife figure. She was not as much a leading lady sort of character as a supporting player. I can't imagine a lot of young girls identifying with the invisible woman and wanting to grow up to be the token female of a male team. And the most colorless member, Pun realized at that. Who else do we have? Why, the winsome wasp. She became Ant-Man's, later Giant-Man's, sidekick with his 11th appearance and had powers derived from his, though no less powerful for it. In fact, her wasp spin, her, in fact, her wasp sting was a more offensive power than anything her boyfriend used. Still, a character conceived of as a sidekick has a rough time being seen as a heavy hitter in his or her own right. And the Wasp's original airheaded heiress flirt personality probably didn't do much to win her female fans who wanted to be her. Besides, how many girls are interested in insects and would fancy themselves with insect powers? From my childhood experience, not nearly as many girls liked bugs as boys. Then there's Marvel Girl, one of the original X-Men. Her powers of telepathy and telekinesis, though not as visual as the guy's powers, were easily on a par with theirs as far as effectiveness. She was generally played as an equal member of the team and not resigned to girlfriend or sidekick role. I'd say that she was one of the best role models of the early Marvel female characters even if she has a very generic, non-descriptive name. More on women heroes next time. And then continued in the third essay. Jessica, go ahead. In my ongoing attempt in this column to determine why more women don't read comics, I began a survey of Marvel's original female superheroes discussing Invisible Girl, Woman, The Wasp, and Marvel Girl in order to assess their female reader identification quotients. I think there's a typo in there. Um, I figured if a reader doesn't identify with a character on some level, she won't go out of she or he won't go out of the way to read about him her. Let's continue this investigation. The other three major superpowered females who debuted in the 1960s premiered as villains and later straightened out. Not exactly suspicious, not exactly suspicious debuts, huh? The Scarlet Witch was first seen as a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. She had a quirky, unpredictable power and allowed herself to be dominated by her overprotective brother, Quicksilver, and father figure, later father, Magneto. I doubt many female readers wanted to identify with her. The Black Widow began as a Russian spy and nemesis of Iron Man. She had no powers and no real costume at first. On the other hand, she had a great deal of autonomy out in the field, so she at least appeared to be in control and in command. She wasn't very flashy, though. Like the wasp, she had that icky insect motif. I doubt that many young American girls related to an older Russian woman. Finally, there was Medusa, who began as a member of the Frightful Four before being revealed as an inhuman. As a group member in both cases, she was subordinate to other males, but she didn't have but she did have a nifty visual power, one that had some feminine appeal, to judge by the female hair products section of my local drugstore. On the other hand, like the widow and the witch, there is a sense of foreign of the foreign about her. She was inhuman, not human after all. And that, I think, limited her appeal as a role model fantasy figure. 
So you add these three to last month's roster and Marvel, Marvel Girl comes off as the best all around female superhero of Marvel's heyday. And even she had a few drawbacks, not the least of which was that she wasn't exactly a headliner in X-Men, the book in which she appeared. So maybe that's one more reason why girls don't read superhero comics. There weren't enough characters for them to identify with, but that was the 60s. Has the Marvel universe improved since? I think so. At present, no female hero boasts her own title, though the She-Hulk returns in her own mag in early 89. But there are quite a few strong female characters floating about, particularly in X-Men. I'd gladly go down the list of new female heroes and give my assessments of their merits if ever, anyone wants. In the meantime, let me know what you, who you think the best female role model characters are in the Marvel Universe and why. And signed Mark Grenwald. Uh, Mark, I love you for having at least ventured this discussion, even though it's based in 1988 and there are problems. Uh, as we use this essay as a template, let me just hear some of your thoughts and reactions based on some of the ideas that Mark is positing here. I think one of the things that I most uh, there's some there's some great stuff in here, especially for for 1988 and 89. So I just want to start with that. I'm impressed by his ability to look big picture um, when he's so immersed in that world, especially. Um, I I think one of the things, uh, yeah, and he also the insect motif thing I thought was fascinating. Um, I. I think that was a great observation. Um, and especially with all the stuff about mouse going on right now and getting banned, mm -hmm. I find an interesting connection between vermin and insects in there that if we have time to talk about, I'd love to talk about more like, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, but I think what I resist most, the assumption that I resist most that just makes my skin crawl um, in here the most is this idea that there's something biological, right? Um, the idea that every time he says biological, I'm like, no, systemic sexism, <laughs> systemic racism, systemic everything, dude, right? This is not in my body. <laughs> um, and especially since, um, you know, this is, I was, you know, 18 or 19 at the time that this came out and I was still getting affected by all of this myself, right? I was internalizing a lot of this and not able to step out of it myself either, um, as I mentioned earlier. So I think that's one of the things that I find most problematic in here. Although again, I applaud him for, for, um, bringing this on. I do want to hear, he keeps saying, I want to hear from you female readers. And then he never says anything that anybody says. Um, he just goes on and on. So I'm curious if he ever addressed uh, what people were saying at all. I think the other thing that's interesting is that the perspective almost puts the fault on not having the fans on the fans and saying, well, there's, there, you're not connecting to anything in the story. So that's why you don't like it. And that's why you don't want to be a part of the industry. But I think there needs to be the conversation about just marketing in general and the fact that these things weren't marketed towards female readers. And I mean, he does talk about the fact that there's not um, characters written for those people. So why would they read those things? But just thinking of it of the perspective of not just comics in general, but the overall marketing and just gender stereotypes of, you know, girls like one thing, boys like the other thing. And it's weird if you cross that boundary and like that other thing. And also a lot of the assumptions about what 
female characters would or would not connect to. Like, I think it's really interesting in in the case of Sue Storm, particularly and talking about, oh, well, her power to be invisible isn't actually that cool. But as a female, you might find that something that you can really connect into because you feel invisible a lot of the time. And then how is this particular character taking this thing that you feel all the time and using it as a strength and turning that around into a positive perspective? Like you might find um, you know, joy in that. And also like as a person who loves villains, you're going to tell me there's a bunch of strong, powerful female villains and that I wouldn't connect to that. Like I most certainly would connect to a sneaky lady getting things done. So it's just interesting to, um, again, yeah, exactly what was being said about, okay, you want to hear the female perspective, but then you're not putting in your follow-up, you know, column what was given back to you by more females, that conversation back and forth is not being shown. And so is that really what the female audience was thinking at that time? Did they actually have the ability or the confidence to say what they were actually feeling in response to this article? Um, Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of really great stuff. and, And I do agree that it's awesome for this person to have taken the step to start this conversation, but I would have even more wanted to have a female actually involved in the conversation other than the one that is kind of mentioned in the first set of it. I um, I started reading comics probably five or six years before this came out. And, um, you know, one of the things like on my first read, one of the things that, um, that it made me really sit down and think about was the fact that, um, I love comics and I have never gotten into the Fantastic Four. I don't, I never identified with Sue. I didn't really care for her. She was not cool enough. I wanted X-Men. I wanted Wonder Woman. I wanted um, Princess Leia, you know, female characters who, who did things that I wanted to do and fade in the back, into the background was not one of them. I had enough of that in my real life, kind mm-hmm. of kind of like Alicia said. Um, so it did kind of make me unpack some of that um, uh, stuff in a way that I, I hadn't before. But um, one of the things I think this essay is built on is the assumption that men like male characters and women like female characters. Yes. And you cannot cross-pollinate. Um, you know, and, and it does put into perspective, like, like Jessica was saying, the fact that now we have young boys identifying strongly with female characters and, and finding something to admire about them as opposed to something to want. Um, and so, you know, it, it gives me kind of a mixed bag of emotions. Some things make me, uh, some things about it make me proud and, and other things, make me wince, um, which I think, is, I guess, a mark of good writing. I think in conjunction with that, I think probably until about 2015, if you were a girl who liked comic books, you were a girl who was into boy things. You were mm-hmm. a girl who picked up boy stuff. Even if there were strong female characters, it was still a boy industry, which there's like an element of tomboyishness. You're a girl who likes boy stuff. Uh, Noel, what did you think about the essay? The thing that probably stuck out most to me is that of the 60s roster that he mentions, Marvel Girls, the best option for girls. <laughs> I read that and I was like, 
I feel like the best option is no option if Marvel Girl is what I'm left with in her 60s incarnation because I read her and I, I looked at some of the old comics when I was a kid and it was like, this character means nothing to me. I like who Jean is now and I like how complicated she's become. But he he kind of leaves it almost as, well, here's the best we have. And he mentions drawbacks to that character, but he doesn't spend a lot of time diving into what those drawbacks are and looking at what is missing in her as a character to sort of influence writing going forward. Her lack of agency, her obvious weakness on the panel that gets overplayed a lot. Um, and in a similar manner, the Scarlet Witch, because she was kind of a parallel to Jean. And I've, I've always loved Scarlet Witch. I think she's super fun. Even in the very beginning, she's problematic like Jean, and she was introduced as a villain. But it, I don't think he talked to very many people or very many women or girls about what they think about these characters. He's making a lot of assumptions like everyone has mentioned because I think you would get a lot of opinions on, well, if this is who you have to choose from, who would, who do you think is best? Who are you most interested in? Because a lot of times a character doesn't have to be someone that we necessarily revere or look up to. One of my favorite characters is Mystique and everyone always reminds me that she's awful, but I love her. <laughs> and <laughs> so some, some back and forth and like, okay, I talked to some, some female readers and this is what they thought about these characters rather than his assumptions of, well, Marvel Girl's the best we have for you. I also, though, wonder what, what they would have said, because like Jessica said, we internalized a lot of that. Um, and I remember, in fact, something that Chad said made me, made me think about the fact that I used to hide my comic books. In fact, I got so used to hiding my comic books that it was probably five or six years into my marriage before I started talking about them with my husband. He never knew that I was into them because it was something you hid. It was a boy thing. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wonder what they, what, what we would have said. Cause I guess I, I guess if, if, <laughs> it's kind of sad, but for the first time I'm realizing I would have been in the audience for this letter and I mm -hmm. don't know what I would have said. Teen girls hid their comics and teen boys hid their playboys. <laughs> that says a lot about the world. <laughs> That's really interesting. I never felt like I had to hide my comics, but I definitely felt out of place reading them. Much like I'm, I'm always so fascinated also by the people who point out that comic book stores themselves were mm -hmm. a place that women just physically um, were most often um, made to feel out of place in, um, and were occasionally even unsafe, right? Spaces, period. Um, but it was a little bit like, yeah, I, I don't know if anybody reads Ghost World. I don't know. Um, Dan Close's Ghost World. I mean, that is written by a man, but the character Enid um, it loves comic books and just is an uncomfortable person in the first place. Um, but there's a lot of, there's a couple storylines where she goes into a comic book store and just gets harassed and um, feels out of place. And it's all just part of her general uncomfortable relationship with the world and society as well. Yeah, in my experience, 
my experience is a little different because I came to reading comics later. I was an X-Men fan, but I didn't read the comics till much, I was much older. And so I, I missed that sort of, you know, what would it be like to go into a comic shop when I was younger and a little less sure of who I was. By the time I got there, it was like, I don't care. You can say whatever you want to me and I'm going to say something back. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's a really good point about it. It felt like a space that you, as women, we might not belong and how that affected people's perceptions of the characters themselves or even making comments about it. There's a very common trope. Oh, mm, let me let me shift the way I'm going to present this. Because we have these characters that are still being written about, we get to see them age and alter as the world ages and alters. And we live in a very different world than the one that existed 60 years ago. And there's a very common trope with super powered characters. We'll get into supporting characters in just a second, but let's take the invisible girl, uh, Jean Grey and Scarlet Witch as three examples, where in the early comics, they were objectified. They were kidnapped by villains who wanted to make them their queens. They were fainting all the time. They were literally flirted with by every character constantly. Over the years, we've seen them first kind of adopt feminist roles uh, they became wives and mothers, right? Then in the 80s, we see them become the most powerful person on the team. And that has stayed with all of them. Wanda has chaos magic that can remake the world. Jean becomes the phoenix and can destroy planets. The invisible woman is by far the most powerful person on her team. And we've seen them go through sexualized periods. And we've seen them become the leaders of the teams. Uh, we, we watch these characters who started out as the supporting cast in some ways become the most powerful person. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts on how these characters change over time. And let me give one specific example in relation to the Invisible Girl. The canon <laughs> regarding how Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Girl met originally was that Reed Richards was a college student who met a young Sue Storm, like a pre-pubescent Sue Storm, and had thoughts about her of, oh, she's gorgeous. I hope to make her my wife one day. And they've literally gone back to rewrite that story because it's so uncomfortable later. We see how things in the 60s were once okay and how are they are not okay now. But again, we see these characters become more and more powerful over time. Uh, so tell me some of your thoughts on how things have changed. One thing I thought of in doing the reading for this was the process that those older characters, those older characters go through. Essentially, they get rehabbed in a way. Either their pasts are retconned, or um, their powers are sort of reimagined. Like in the Scarlet Witch's case, hers did not make sense. They just didn't even come up with a real meaning or purpose behind hers in the beginning. Um, but just that process of rehabbing the character into something, into someone who is powerful, has agency, um, and can make their own choices, interact with other characters, and also interact with other female characters. Because especially in the X-Men, the women exist in a male bubble. They don't have those connections to other characters. And so just rebuilding those sorts of things to get to the character to a point that there's someone 
really strong and someone who can be respected as a, a main player in the comics was it was just interesting something I hadn't thought about I, I have all these stories in my head but just the actual process it took to get those characters to a point where they are now yeah and I think what some of the writers are doing in in changing that is interesting because they're actually allowing the characters to be part of that growth themselves. And it's not just a written growth that they just say, and now this is who they are, you know, thinking specifically about the Scarlet Witch and what Leah Williams did with the trial of Magneto and where that went for her, you know, that character reshaped her own destiny by like reflecting on herself and making a change within herself. And as you were kind of talking about the trajectory of you know, being more of a person in the background and then growing to being the most powerful person on the team. It really just started making me think about my life experience and my personal growth of just figuring out who I was and being comfortable, you know, like Noelle was saying, going into a comic book shop and not caring about what what people are going to say to you, even though they may say those things to you. It's a really interesting parallel, I think, to just a, a potential female experience or really an any person experience of feeling not fully yourself and not fully confident in yourself and then progressing to the most powerful version of yourself that you can be. But I think it's important for the writers to really be including how the character feels about that development and how the character feels about their past and their past traumas or uh, their past experiences with other characters and where they are now versus it just being a little retcon that was made and okay we changed it now and this character is this way you know really getting to see them experience that change for themselves is something that i enjoy seeing when it's presented well and it's worthy to note although it's a longer discussion in the case of both jean and wanda we have male writers who give these women power and then make them go crazy and mm-hmm. they have too much power and they destroy planets or alter the world. And now we have female writers who are kind of cleaning up those messes and allowing them to have that power and use it in better ways. So I think that's part of the narrative as well. Yeah, for sure. I think Carol Danvers and Ms. Marvel is, of course, an awesome example as well. Um, being Ms. Marvel, who is somebody's husband, and then being able to step into that Captain Marvel role. And so, and people still assume people who don't know comics. When I tell them about, you know, how Kamala Khan, there was this opening for a Ms. Marvel, and Kamala Khan kind of stepped into that. Right? People still are like, well, Captain Marvel. People who don't know it all think that Captain Marvel is a man automatically. Right? It's still hard culturally for people to hear Captain Marvel and picture um, a woman. So, um, but yeah, she's definitely, especially with a recent movie, so powerful, flies in space, right? Um, Can breathe flying in space, kind of like, um, uh, kind of a little bit like uh, Leia, right? Uh, In the the Star Wars thread, right? She can survive out there. Um, And it's, it's really, really refreshing to see for sure. And I do think it largely becomes, you know, who's writing it and it's women writing it. and I, I do, I totally, like, we get to see in the most recent movie as well, we get to see her working through her own trauma as well, whereas I, it seemed like a pretty thin plot device before. I mean, I don't know as much about it as um, my contributor who wrote about um, Captain Marvel 
and Carol Danvers, but um, there was this kind of thin plot device of her getting raped and getting amnesia. And it was just kind of a, what would be traumatic to a woman, a male writer might think, right? Um, And they'd kind of throw in all this nasty trauma um, to help with an amnesia that could rewrite something, right? Um, And yeah, not pleasant to read. So it's just been really refreshing to see that. Self-actualization, right? I think you're you're referring to the J. Richard Stevens's essay in your book. Um, not only not only does Carol Danvers get raped, she gives birth to her rapist. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> oh, Avengers, I forgot about that detail. Avengers yeah. number Avengers number two hundred is one of the worst stories Marvel has ever published. It's 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 a it's a horrible example of of a, a character that we now see as a really powerful iconic uh, uh, portrayal of of what a character can be, but yeah, she's been through some stuff. Yeah. And, and partly just for the sake of plot. Right. Um. Yeah. And that's true. of So many other female characters, they just get put through this trauma and a lot of times they're not allowed the space to process it. I know in the Scarlet witch trial, um, when Wanda loses her children, um, her friends keep that from her and they rely on that sort of forgetting to assume that she's processed it and she's over it now because she can't remember. And I think characters being able to on the page, be able to grapple with traumas that they've been through, whether those are written by someone who was, uh, sensitive to the topic or not is really important to their growth. Um, because People can relate to that, men or women, everyone deals with some sort of trauma and having these characters just say, I don't remember, so it's fine, isn't real to life at all. Well, and I I think female trauma in general, I mean, heck, that could be an entire podcast in and of itself in how it's you know, how it's used as a, a motivation. There's the women in refrigerators trope where you know, if you if you need your male character to have some motivation, let's kill off the lady and stuff her in a fridge. Um, and I think I think if you look at it that way, the changes to how we're treating female characters um, or how we're beginning to treat female characters is a positive. But I think there's also, you know, um, I, I'm not sure if I'm the only one who's run into some resistance. Um, maybe as a writer, my experience is slightly different, but that, that you're rewriting characters that were great and I loved them the way they were. And, and now you're changing what I liked because you're trying to be woke or something like that. And I think my, you know, from the point of view of a creator, my argument is I'm trying to tell a good story, um, you know, and, and a story in which each of the characters has realistic motivations and and has their own arc of growth or, you know, arc in which they don't grow, and then it's a tragedy. Um, but I, I don't know, from the point of view of, of, like, podcasting or academics, do you run into resistance for ideas like this or... Um, or, or is this unique to being a writer? Yay. I mean, this this happens with 
uh, with a lot of characters outside the franchise too. When the Black Widow first appears in the comics as an Iron Man villain, she's literally a widow. She's dressed in black. She has a veil over her face. She's a Russian spy who flirts with men and gets them to do her bidding. And now she's this kick-ass woman in leather who has this tragic past and she's trying to undo it and she's been alive for a hundred years. You know, we we see these stories change and it's been changing for decades. The Black Widow has been different since the 70s. Uh, so you're not the only one trying to change or update characters. That's been oh, happening yeah. with male writers for a long time. Yeah, wonder, I'm not arguing that at all. I, no, I, it's but I'm not wondering, mine. I'm wondering if uh, women writers or gay writers or writers of color get more uh, more pressure to conform. Like, look at you changing everything when when white male writers have been changing everything for decades. Yeah, and I also think it's it's interesting sometimes to have a character that doesn't have that white whatever the current hope for all characters is like that doesn't meet those standards. Like, I feel. Like it's okay to have characters that are not able to work through something or not able to come to whatever the present uh, like woke moment is, you know, then they have to grow as a character or other people have to grow in their relationship with them and it creates conflict and it, it makes the story more exciting. So I think I'm understanding what you're saying, Carrie, and that, you know, not because not all human beings are always going to be that version of themselves that everybody wants and hopes for them to be. So not all characters should be at that point either. And the effort to make everybody fit into that box because they want to it to be appropriate for the time isn't necessarily true to how every character would be. You would have some female characters who, but also, okay, I'm going to change my own thought. Like you have some females, right? Some actual real life females who really like things that maybe would have made them considered to be a tomboy or that were boy things. But you also have female characters who would want to wear a pretty puffy dress and a lot of makeup and fit into, you know, people who like the, to be a stay at home mom or who want to like bake every night and wear an apron. Like sometimes people like those things. And so trying to fit every character into what the idea of a modern person or a modern woman is, doesn't necessarily reflect all of humanity and that you have to have some characters that are on that spectrum and some characters who are on the other to have a overall balance. Jessica, when you are teaching, what topics do you cover in relation to comics in your classroom? Hmm. That is a good question. Um, I do. So it's a general education course. It's not a high level literature course, even though I get a lot of lit students in there as well. Um, and I do kind of a half and half craft um, and then studying the literature. And oftentimes we have to do it very fast <laughs> too. Um, so I have them do a project by the end and I do kind of a Linda Berry uh, angle on that. Like you can all draw, don't worry. Um, let's talk about the language of comics and get it on the page. Um, show me that you can use that and you will, you know, your project will be fine. <laughs> it will be A plus, right? Because um, there's a lot of anxiety over that. Um, and then, so the literature, half of it, I'm just trying to give people who have no clue um, about comics. And we do get a range. Sometimes people are like, ooh, a comics class. I'm going to go in there and get really nerdy about, you know, superheroes, right? So we have those people who are up here. And then sometimes we have people who are like, 
I couldn't get anything else to fit my schedule. I'm really scared. Right. <laughs> Um, so I just try to give a reasonable arc for people. We do very simply Scott McLeod's understanding comics, um, just to get people familiar with the language of comics and how to use it and how it works and get people reading carefully and thinking hard, um, about how they read much of, for people who do know it really well, it's just so internalized. Right. Um, but people have never, I get people in there who've never read comics before. They're like, I don't really understand which panel to go to next. Right. Um, yeah. And I start, since I don't have a ton of time, I usually start 1986 mouse and kind of talk about a recent and say 1986, this book, um, Art Spiegelman's mouse wins the Pulitzer. Right. Um, it's kind of a big deal. People in America have a tendency to say that comics are uh, kid stuff, um, to use all these, you know, bad stereotypes in their headlines about Biff Bam Pow, comics, this, that, right? Um, so 1986, this wins a Pulitzer Prize. People are saying, oh, okay. Um, U.S. people, people, people in Europe got this a long time ago and worldwide got this a long time ago, but people in the U.S. are saying, hey, this is an important way of telling stories. Um, so I start there and then I just go to the present with as many different styles and representations as I can squeeze in um, and voices as well as I can squeeze in. So it's kind of an overview. We don't get super duper in depth in there. Um, but I also just want to I'm, I, I love Linda Berry. Um, not everybody does, but I love the way she empowers people to just tell their story and just get it out there. So that's one of the things I'm focused on as well. I teach other creative writing classes too. So tell us about Linda Berry's work just a little. Yeah. Um, she, yeah. Um, okay. She started as a strip artist. She, um, comic strip artist. Um, and she actually worked with Matt Groening and went to school with Matt Groening, uh, Life and Hell and Simpsons. Um, and they both did, um, Linda Berry would tell comics, um, make comic stories much like, um, Matt Groening was doing that in a lot of free papers, especially, um, in the eighties. And she would have these, um, she had this character called Marlis and she was kind of a, messed up kid who had difficult problems um, and would just kind of tell them um, weekly. And they were, she was talking, she was, she was an outsider herself and she talked very frankly about a lot of other outsider identities as well. Um, and just brought a lot of complication um, into comics. I think a lot of people associate um, the Simpsons, even though it is a very, complicated show, um, kind of see it as this, you know, glossy oversimplified package thing, which is not fair, but that's the way they see it. Linda Berry, um, in contrast, kind of took her craft into a very scribbly form um, with what you could also call very scribbly, uh, difficult storylines, I think. Um, yeah. And now she's doing, she's just also very committed. Um, now she works at um, University of Wisconsin and is very committed to, first of all, drawing by hand, um, and second of all, to, as I mentioned earlier, um, helping people just kind of tell their stories, uh, whether they feel like they're a good artist or not. I just did air quotes that people cannot <laughs> see on a podcast. <laughs> so two other topics I want to introduce very briefly in relation to the portrayal of uh, female characters in the 60s. We have supporting characters, 
who let me use uh, Spider-Man as an example. A lot of Spider-Man supporting characters from the 60s have become very rich, complex characters since their portrayal in the 60s. Aunt May, who was, you know, having a heart attack every other issue back at the beginning, has become a a woman who runs uh, the Feast Project, Feeding the Homeless, and who's a vibrant supporting character in Peter's life very regularly and is an activist. Uh, Betty Brant, who's kind of the fainting secretary, has become a world-class reporter, Uh, Gwen Stacy, of course, was killed uh, many years ago, but we have Spider-Gwen, who's become this iconic teenage superhero that's kind of revolutionized uh, people's understanding of that character. And Liz Allen, who's the other character, has come on to be, even though she's a mother, uh, has gone on to become a uh, the head of, of a huge uh, uh, chemical company and is kind of morally complex. We see a lot of characters from the 60s as well who have adopted superhero identities. Uh, Betty Banner or Betty Ross from The Hulk who fainted the first time she saw The Hulk has become the Red She-Hulk and later the Red Harpy. Or Jane Foster, who's the nurse that just thinks about Thor all the time and I just want to take care of him, has now become the Thor character in some ways or at some times and now has a movie coming out. We see these characters, again, in the hands of writers becoming very different characters over time. The most recent announcement being Clea, who is Doctor Strange's girlfriend from the 60s, is becoming the new Doctor Strange. Tell me some of your thoughts on the changing roles of the 60s supporting characters over time. Um, I think it's great. I think one of the things um, that, that I like about it is that these are characters that as a as a reader you might enjoy Um, for me Clea was one of them um, who she doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the page in the past and you think I I wish I had more Um, and that's not to say that I don't love Doctor Strange too I don't think you have to have one or the other Um, but giving her a chance to star in something um, I think is spectacular. And, and as a writer, it's one of the most exciting things to do. I picked up um, some little used female characters from the witches miniseries and put them in a ghostwriter book. And um, it gives you things to draw on, um, but you feel like you're getting a chance to um, let these characters who already exist blossom, um, which is special. Yeah, and this point has been brought up already by, I think, a couple of people, but I know Carrie said it earlier that these characters were originally there for the other characters, to support the other characters, right? They were there as something to be had by the other characters, but now they are given, you know, it's like they were a supporting role and now this is their, this is their leading moment. They're given their own identity and, you know, it's an interesting tool because you have every story is going to be a a focused on a specific character. And then there are other characters in the background. So not just from the perspective of giving these female characters a stronger moment, but just as a story tool to then flip the world and say like, Oh, this is what the world is looking like through the eyes of this character. Um, From a fandom perspective, it, it really broadens the universe for you and it gives you endless possibilities. Someone who's just randomly back in the background of a panel or just shows up and, um, you know, says three lines in a book, then can later have a whole world of their own. So that's really exciting. And sometimes people really connect to side characters and then they want to see more from them and they get excited when they come back. And 
you know, it pulls back into the idea of everyday people can somehow be fantastic and marvelous and have their own shining moment. Um, and they don't just have to be who you expect to be the star of the show. Uh, so let me ask each of you, when you first started, and this doesn't have to be just X-Men or Marvel related, but when you first started reading comics, uh, who were your favorite female characters and who are your favorites now? I don't think I told y'all I was reading my big brother's comics. So I don't even remember any female characters from the Spider-Man and stuff I was reading. I mean, there really just wasn't anybody um, that I remember. I'm sure there were, but I don't, I think they were just so not me that they didn't stick in my head. You didn't want to be Aunt May when you grew up? (laughs) (laughs) What did she even look like in those early ones? No. (laughs) So frail in the early books. I think the, um, the spider verse Aunt May is a lot cooler. (laughs) I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind being her. Um, but yeah, no, I don't even remember what she looked like then. Um, it was, it was all (laughs) Spider-Man. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I love Kamala Khan. I love Captain Marvel. I mean, it's I'm biased. <laughs> Those are my favorites right now. Um, it's it, there's so many more to choose from now, and I also love um, that I have my two boys are my research assistants, and they've read like the Marvel Encyclopedia cover to cover like ten times each. <laughs> so anytime I have a question, if I'm writing something, I'm like, hey, so Medusa, when did they find out she was inhuman? Right? Like they've got it like right on their fingertips yeah. too. Well, I'm still new to comics, but when I first started reading comics, one of the characters that stood out the most to me was Storm. Um, And X-Men comics are really the only comics that I've read or that I had started reading. Um, But now I read more than that. Um, But Storm stood out the most to me specifically because where I had seen her before was only in the movies. And then when I got to see her in the comics, I was like, "Um, excuse me, this woman is amazing. And why was she not portrayed this way in the movies? Um, So Storm for sure. But now my favorite characters are Emma Frost and Kate Pride, um, because I feel like though they are very different characters, they have both over the course of what's happening right now in the Krakoan age really come into ownership of who they are as people and really like standing firm with with that and creating powerful experiences. Um, Another character that I really connect well to that's not an X-Men is Peggy Carter um, slash Captain Carter. Um, I think even outside of the what if of her getting the Captain America serum and becoming the super soldier, even just as a regular human being, she always sticks to her morals. She's always a go-getter. She's always first to, to, to solve a problem. And again, a person who really just has ownership of who she is and doesn't apologize for it. So I really like her. And then there's a, a comic called, um, Something is Killing the Children. And there's a character in that comic, uh, Erica Slaughter. And I also just really love her. And I'm just starting to get to know her. I've just started reading that series. And they, they're they just starting to get into more of like who she is personally. But 
you know, she has this basically hidden talent that's inside her and she's just sort of tapping into it. So I find the female characters that I most connect to are the people who are starting to understand who they are personally and not being afraid to let that shine, which I think is just something I personally connect to in the last like 10 years or so of my life. Um, my first comic that I bought, my dad just took me to a comic store and told me to pick a comic that I wanted. It ended up being a very problematic comic because it's, uh, with the body swap with Psylocke. And so <laughs> that was, that was my first comic introduction. And then later when I got back, he was like, oh, that was like the worst one I could have ever chosen. But when I was a kid, I loved the ninja Psylocke. Um, and so now I sort of don't love the Betsy Braddock story as much, but I'm really liking what they're doing with Psylocke and I want to see more of the comics with her. Um, Storm, just like Alicia said, always loved her. Um, and Kitty Pri- or Kate Pride now, um, I'm loving seeing her just come into her own and go head to head with um, anyone else really. Um, and another current one that I didn't really have a lot that I read or knew about her before is magic. Mm-hmm. She's probably my favorite character right now. Um, and she's also one who's been used and abused by writers over the years and seeing her come into her own and finding herself, um, you know, kind of recognizing that there's all these problems in her past and all this trauma and just, sort of owning it and moving forward in that way. Um, She's probably my top favorite right now. Um, Like everybody else, one of my first characters was Kate Pride. Um, She was somebody like me. Um, You know, she was a teenager and I was a teen when I started to read. And it was the first time I'd seen a superhero character that I could identify with. Um, And so that was really, that was, what got me into X-Men. Um, and I also, like everybody else, Storm, Kitty was probably who I was and Storm was who I wanted to be. Um, and then now um, I love Emma Frost. I got a chance to, um, I, I wrote a bit of Emma and she was one of my favorite characters because she's so complicated um, and and complex and it's a, it's a delightful thing, even though I don't always agree with her. Sometimes I just want to shake her, Uh, (laughs) but that's a good thing. She doesn't have to be all one thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, same thing with She-Hulk. She's, she's a study in contrast. She's, she's huge and powerful and she's also a lawyer and she's kind of cranky. And, and I like the fact that they feel like they could be real people as opposed to a pinup. The flip side of the conversation we're having about the changing portrayal of female characters over the years is the changing portrayal of men. And we're not going to take time for that today, but I do want to note that a lot of the boys who were sexist in their original portrayals, that sticks with them in their histories. We will forever have the scene of Charles Xavier lusting after his student Jean Grey, right? We will forever have Beast calling Jean a wench in that one issue. We have these, uh, we also on the flip side have villains in the 60s who were megalomaniacal crazy people who just screamed all the time. 
have to be fleshed out. You know, Magneto becomes a concentration camp survivor, we learn later, which adds so much depth to his character. But we get to learn and have writers adapt all of those things. So the question I actually want to ask is, what makes a good female supervillain? And who are your favorites? Really, that's a great question, Chad. We're all... For those of you who can't see our faces on Zoom, we're all thinking really hard. (laughs) (laughs) I think what makes, this is not going to be a fully formed thought, but I'm going to say something. I think what makes a good female supervillain is just being a good supervillain and not necessarily having to talk about the fact that they're a female supervillain. You know, like I think any villain that I enjoy, I feel something for in some way, whether I absolutely disagree with them 100% and I want to watch them burn, or I feel some, some sort of compassion for their story. And I feel torn because I can in a way connect to their struggle. And a lot, a lot of times I am on the side of villains. I love villains. Um, and I think having their motivation and their arc be really about something that is deep in their soul that matters to them and not necessarily just about a revenge story, I think is what makes them a good villain and allowing them to have complexities and dynamics and have soft human moments and then scary villain moments. Who are your favorites, Alicia? Oh my God. All of them. Um, well, okay. So recently, uh, Justin and I have been rewatching the daredevil series. And when I first watched that series, I did not like Electra. I was like, "Ugh, Electra, go away. You're annoying me. But now I'm watching it, you know, with a new lens, with a, a fresh perspective on it, with, different feelings from comics in general and just being emerged in that world. And I feel like Electra is who she is, you know, she's kind of a villain. She's kind of a hero. She's kind of a little bit in between, but where she is right now in the daredevil series, as I'm watching it, she's a villain and I love it. I'm here for Electra. Give me more. Don't tell Justin. I said that (laughs) he'll probably listen to this, but that's okay. Uh, same question for the other panel. What makes a good supervillain, uh, female supervillain, and who are your favorites? I mean, I think Alicia had an... Oh, go ahead. You go. You're good. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think Alicia had a great point in that their villainness isn't necessarily related to them being a female. And I was actually... I had the same thought as you of... I don't want to. I don't want their villainy to be rooted in revenge. I want it to be something... They want something or they believe in something. Um, my, my probably favorite villain is Magneto, um, mm-hmm. where he is on the villain spectrum now aside. I, I love Magneto, all versions of Magneto. He's my favorite villain. Um, another one who is just straight up terrible, but I love is uh, Mr. Sinister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just a lot of fun, even though he's a nightmare. Um, I can't think of a lot of female villains that yeah. I love from the comics. Um, I'd have to you say said, Mystique is I was going to say you said Mystique before, yeah. Yeah, and I guess she's a villain. 
Um, I guess, you know, that's my, my bias showing. I don't want to call her necessarily a villain. Um, Mystique's probably the only one that I can think of on the comic, from the comics that I love. Um, from the movies, though, I loved Hela. Um, yes. Thor Ragnarok. Um, I was just going to throw that was, back in there. <laughs> yeah, because she was so powerful, so strong, very feminine. She did the hair thing, um, but nothing about her being female mattered to her story. She just wanted her power and her place, and I loved that about her character. I was actually going to wait for you to talk Noel because I was going to say Mystique um, and I didn't know if you wanted to talk about her. And I completely agree. I think I, I love her because she's so complicated and, and part of she's a villain in air quotes. Um, and part of her motivation is just trying to um, resist what she's been through. Right. And trying to speak back to, so she's not really a villain, right. Cause she's, speaking into injustice. Right. Um, and that's, that's why I think she's great. I'm, she's complicated. Right. Yes. <laughs> Very. Um, and, and I think kind of building off of what all, um, all of you have said that they should be good villains. And, and part of that, I think is that you're not solely motivated by your trauma or driven crazy by it. Um, because then you get that kind of hysterical woman trope where she's, she's mad and she needs to be locked away or, or somehow handled because she can't deal with what has happened to her. Um, and so I, a lot of my favorites are the same as yours. Um, but one of the things that I do enjoy is that Asgard has a whole lot of great, strong female characters. So they have, um, in terms of villain, they have Hela and they also have Enchantress, who I don't think quite gets her um, gets her due a lot of the time. And, and she has a lot of the same characteristics that I love about Hela. Um, so I, I think they're out there. Um, they just aren't as as well known or or they don't get as much page time. This is I just think- off. This is just off the top of my head, so we could easily make it a much longer list. But if I think of male supervillains from the 60s, I could easily come up with 200. But females, I can think of Scarlet Witch, Medusa, and uh, and Black Widow, who have all been heroized since. The only supervillains I can think of are Princess Python, who no one knows, uh, Hela and Enchantress, we come up with, and then Madame Hydra, the, the Captain America villain who became yes. Viper, who is irredeemably evil. Um, but there's really not that many. It's a very short list. I Basically. just remember Catwoman too, right? Oh, so sure. she's complicated and fascinating. And especially if you get into TV and like the Eartha Kit version, right? She mm-hmm. was also kind of speaking up um, in some way. I mean, as much as that medium allowed um, speaking up, her, her villainousness. <laughs> um was and was because she was speaking up um against injustice and oversimplification in a lot of ways but even then it's only one woman when there's 27 other men that we can easily think of very quickly right (laughs) but i just need more (laughs) i'd forgotten about her because she goes back and forth um and there's so many different versions of her and some of them are great and some of them are oh no um but i think the the good versions of her villainous are are at least semi-complicated. 
Um, but DC has a few of those too. Yeah. I mean, there's also Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn um, who kind of straddle the line between anti-hero kind of verge falling off onto either side, depending on the storyline. So it's an interesting, um, I, I'm not sure if you could call it a trope, but uh, interesting that there are um, multiple female characters who kind of straddle that gray space. Yeah, either that or they have to be redeemed. Like, yeah, let someone be bad, like all the way bad. Yeah. It was only seven or eight years ago when Marvel kind of took stock and realized we need more people of color. We need more women. We need more female writers. Uh, we need more portrayal. And they put a lot of initiative into creating those spaces. Uh, and we've seen Squirrel Girl and Shuri and Ironheart and, you know, on and on. There's a lot of characters that have become iconic. Uh, Kate Bishop uh, and they're getting their airtime uh, Kamala Khan and America Chavez. I mean, we can go on and on. And we're seeing an industry that has changed uh, from the ground up. But really, it's only been in the last five or six years. Most of what we're playing with is still the old stuff. Uh, and it's still in place. As we are kind of wrapping up our conversations today, let me ask two questions of each of you. Number one, is there just anything you'd like to share that you didn't get to share? And number two, what's something that stood out to you today that uh, that maybe has inspired thoughts or ideas that you maybe didn't have before? I think everything that I've wanted to say, I've said. Um, <laughs> but the, this last conversation about female villains has really, it's really interesting. I, I've been thinking every time everyone is talking, I'm like, who else is a female villain? Who's my favorite female villain? And it's really making me think about where those exist and what exactly it is that I like about them or what would make them successful and how we find more of them. Because it is interesting, the conversation of, are they villainous because they're in that a female who can't control their emotions kind of thing, or like what else can we do to make a female villain feel really strong? And so that's something I think I'll leave here with is where can I find more of them and what is appealing about them? And just hoping, I guess that more of them emerge as things continue to change. Uh, let me note really quickly, because we referenced Mark Grunwald earlier. He has a run in Captain America in the late 80s, early 90s. I believe it's collected in a trade called the Superior Stratagem, if I'm remembering the name correctly, where he has a villainess named Superior who creates uh, an island for all super villain women. And every villain in it is a female character who has appeared in a Marvel comic previously. And uh, she just, she's like, fuck men, we're just going to create this space for us. And then ultimately her plot line is she wants to sterilize men and like create a female dominated earth. And it's really interesting. Uh, she even tries to turn Captain America into a woman as part of the story. Uh, but but you have to admire, you have to admire Mark's Kuspa in telling that story at the time. It's a, it's a really interesting book. It's worth looking into because there's, there's dozens and dozens of female characters that are all gathered in one place. Uh, same questions to the rest of the panel. 
Well, that answers the second part of your question. <laughs> Very like I'm totally gonna go looking for that. Um, yeah, as somebody who kind of straddles um superhero comics and then um graphic fiction um and and nonfiction and things like that. Like I was just writing down a lot of names that y'all were mentioning that I don't know. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna be getting back into my superhero reading a lot more <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I'm all about the uh, female villains now. I got to go back and kind of do some rereads and figure out who I like or what I do or don't like about them. Because um, I I liked um, Alicia and Carrie's comments about being focused on revenge or reacting out of trauma. Because um, that was probably one of my biggest problems with uh, the Scarlet Witch. And she just falls into that quote unquote hysteria um over her trauma and inflicts it on everyone. And she's not someone I think of as a villain, uh, whether or not she's done bad things. And, you know, just kind of I'm I'm just inspired to look into more of the villains or those characters who aren't really on either side, whether good or evil. Um, and what are their motivations and things like that. So I just I want to look into that now. Um, I th I think I said just about everything I wanted to say. Um, I think as a creator, I'm actually getting ready to start a new project that has a female main character, and the the temptation is to to write the kind of hero that that you want to see in the world, right? Um, you know, you you want to write someone who does things right. Um, but it, it's really refreshing to be in a conversation where, where we can talk about the fact that we love characters for their flaws as much as for their strengths. And that's part of what makes them real. And so, um, I'll, I'll be keeping that in mind as I draft this next one, because I think it's an important, it's an important fact. It's a, it's a, a reality that helps us feel like we could be those heroes. And ultimately, I think that's what we want. I feel like there are about 12 points from today's conversation that could be their own two-hour podcast. Uh, <laughs> we we started kind of mentioning the, you know, the problematic ideas of gender as a construct itself, but we do live in a society that's obsessed with gender. And so I think there's value in analyzing this and really taking a hard look about what this looks like. The portrayal of characters and how they've changed, supporting characters versus heroes versus villains. Uh, characters being handled by white male writers and how that's changing and how the industry is shifting. Uh, we live in a world where different stories are being told. Um, I watch cartoons with my children. And uh, when we watch old Disney movies, they're like, oh, everything ends in a wedding. Uh, and and all, of the, all of the female villains are crazy. Uh, but we're living in a society where we have cartoons like Hilda and She-Ra and all these things where we're seeing powerful female lead characters. And the stories are changing. And the stories of the characters, even in Disney movies, are changing. It doesn't always end in a love story. It's a different type of thing. I'm, I'm really happy that we can analyze some of this older stuff from this space. Now, the X-Men in particular, particularly since Chris Claremont's run, has been a, a, a place where powerful women have been able to shine. And we've seen that reflected in female readers who've been invested in the X-Men much more than any other book for a really long time. 
the numbers of female readers over time because of characters like Storm and Phoenix and Rogue and Jubilee and Psylocke, even though there's been problems in their portrayals, we've seen really powerful stories that have developed and they're beloved characters now that uh, we're seeing storylines in our modern comics where female characters are healing from traumas afflicted uh, by men. And we're, we're seeing this story about violence and, and problematic portrayal change. It's a good time to be a comic book fan, even as we change the rules around all of this. Um, it's been so enlightening and valuable for me to hear uh, your ideas and your thoughts as fans and as professionals and podcasters. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for spending your time. I'm going to be uh, sitting with my buzzing brain for the next few days as I'm like, oh, oh, I thought of this and this and this. Uh, but uh, but I, I feel altered as we uh, as we conclude this conversation. Um, what an honor to spend the afternoon with each of you. Thank you for spending your time with me. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Chad. Any, yeah. any final thoughts? All of you. Good to meet all of you, too. Sorry, Chad. Yes. Oh, no, I was just going to say any final thoughts as we wrap up and uh, and where can people find each of you online and or what can we look forward to coming up from you in your professional and or personal uh, works? You can find Gray Malkin Lane at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast on Twitter and Gray Malkin Lane on, uh, on Instagram. Our next episode is going to feature a guest we were hoping to join us today, who is a, uh, a college professor and writer named Susan Kirtley, who's going to join us for a uh, review episode in our next, uh, in our next uh, podcast. So we're really happy Susan could join us next time. Well, I just want to say, Chad, thank you so much for putting this whole thing together, for having this conversation. And honestly, the all of all of you here are such wonderful people to talk to. I've learned so much and I feel inspired by, you know, getting to know you all and some of you getting to see you and talk to you again um, as a person who is really newly diving into specifically the X-Men fandom. It never ceases to amaze me how wonderful this community is and how many friends I've made during this experience. So anytime I get asked to do anything like this, I feel really grateful. So thank you. Um, as far as where people can find me, if you want to follow the podcast journey, we're all over the internet at the ex-wife podcast. It's T-H-E-X-W-I-F-E as in X-Men, not as in former wife. And um you can find me personally at Wilder Moves on Facebook and Instagram if you want to follow up on my cosplay, podcast, dance, regular life journey. Um, as far as things that are coming up, we talk about current comics every week on the podcast. And we're also diving into what uh, my husband refers to as my ex-ed, my X-Men education. So we go back into past comics and chat about those things. And on my cosplay side of things, I am working on a new magic cosplay. So that'll be coming soon. So I think I mentioned already that my, well, oh, yes, thank you. I mean, I already said it, but I want to say it again. This was just a fabulous conversation. And I love that we all have different ways into comics and different backgrounds. And it's really great to hear so many different angles on this material. Um, yeah, my comics review blog is commonscomics.com. Um, it's been a little slow because I've been finishing my 
um, super nerdy academic book manuscript bodies and boundaries and graphic fiction and look for that either the end of this year or next year. So I'm excited to get back into reviews on Commons comics as well. But yeah, thanks again. Oh, and I should mention Ms. Marvel's America No Normal is the um, my my initial way into nerdy writing about superheroes. Um, and uh, I co-edited that with Hussein Rashid, and it's also a bunch of academic essays, but also an interview with um, Shabana Amir and uh, G. Willow Wilson at the end of it. Um, and we we really did work pretty hard to to keep it readable and uh, not get too academic dense. So um, keep an eye out for that if you're interested um, in Ms. Marvel. I have started that. I haven't uh, got too far in, but I'm loving it so far. So I was super excited to get to talk to you today. Thanks, Yay. of course, Chad, Thanks. for bringing everybody together. This is so awesome. Um, my podcast is X-Men Unraveled. You can find it most places where podcasts live. Um, again, I cover the X-Men stories in chronological order. Um, I'm just coming back this week, actually, with season two. Um, starting with the formation of the X-Men team. So I am very excited to start down that road. Um, and then I'm on Instagram and Twitter at X-Men Unraveled as well. And uh, you can find me online um, at carrieharrisbooks.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter a lot when I'm trying to avoid writing. Um, and I'm C-A-R-R-H-A-R-R. And um, I just wanted to say thank you. This conversation has been really inspiring in a way that I didn't expect. Um, and it, it's just been delightful to talk to you all. I have a thousand ideas buzzing. Uh, thank you all for being inspirational and wonderful and for your willingness to share both personally and professionally about what you're doing and your experiences as both uh, fans and casters. Uh, 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 Noel and Alicia, I adore you both. We've got to become good friends, uh, and I love your podcasts and your work. And and for Jessica and Carrie, I've read your books, and uh, I'm huge fans of both of yours, and I'm, I'm thrilled to uh, consider you both friends as well. So thank you all for being here. I look forward to nerding out with you all again soon, uh, and we'll see you guys back here uh, next time on Grand Mountain Lane.